Welcome to the New Heights Show on Education. I'm Pamela Clark, founder and director of the New Heights Educational Group. And I'm here with David Smith, the founder of Silicon Valley High School, who has helped us get these podcasts produced and delivered to you. Yes, Pamela, when we saw the great things that you and your army of volunteers were achieving at New Heights, we wanted to get involved. We're happy to work with you to leverage the internet and make quality education accessible and affordable to everyone, everywhere. Thank you, David. We appreciate Silicon Valley High School helping us to get these podcasts out to the hundreds of thousands of listeners from all over the world. So I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to New Heights Educational Group Radio Show. My name is Kevin Behan, your host and a volunteer for New Heights. Today on the agenda, let's talk about sex education being taught in public schools. But before we begin, as always, we do have some announcements. Right now, you might be struggling through your classes or even failing them. You might be worried that you may not finish high school. There might have even been a thought that you may not be smart enough. Well, the New Heights Educational Group begs to differ. We not only think you are smart enough, but with our help, you will complete your high school diploma. The New Heights Educational Group strives to improve your academic success through its tutoring services. To learn more, please visit newheightseducation.org and contact us. New Heights Educational Group, educational resources to help reach your goals. First, we're going to discuss an article called School-Based Sexuality Education, the Issues and Challenges. And this article does a good job at highlighting the the issues among uh, different types of sexu- sexuality education, sex education, and the outcomes of sex education preventing STDs, uh, birth birth among teenagers, etc. And this is by Patricia Donovan at the Guttmacher um, Institute for Sexual Health and Education. In the fall of 1997, the Franklin County, North Carolina School Board ordered chapters on sexual behavior, contraception, and AIDS and other sexually transmitted diseases cut out of its health textbook for ninth graders. The leaders material the board said did not comply with the new state law requiring public schools to teach abstinence until marriage in their comprehensive health education program for students in kindergarten through ninth grade. The school board also instructed AIDS teachers were to say that the disease is caused by a virus that is transmitted primarily by contaminated needles and illegal homosexual acts. <clears throat> These actions came after months of debate in the county about how to handle sex education in accordance with the new law, which allows school districts to offer more comprehensive sexuality education only after a public hearing and a public review of instructional materials. The board's new policy is a compelling example of the controversy raging in many communities over what public schools should teach in sex education classes. Although national and state polls consistently show that 80 to 90 percent of adults support sex education in schools, including instruction on contraception and disease prevention in a distance to abstinence, <clears throat> many school districts are under intense pressure to eliminate discussion of birth control methods and disease prevention strategies from their sex education programs. Instead, they are urged to focus exclusively on abstinence as a means of preventing pregnancy and STDs. The abstinence-only movement has triggered a debate around the country about whether contraception should be discussed at all. Observed Douglas Kirby, Director of Research at ETR Associates, who studies the impact of sex education programs. The intensity of debate is noted even by longtime sex education advocates such as Leslie Cantor, formerly the Director of Planning 
and Special Projects with the Sexuality Information and Education Council of the United States, and currently Vice President for Education with Planned Parenthood of New York City. She says there have always been disgruntled parents here and there, but local school boards have never seen anything like very organized, orchestrated campaign for abstinence-only education. State legislators are also feeling pressure of the 51 sex education bills that were ordered by state legislators through March 1998, 20 pertain to making abstinence the focus of sex education in public schools. <clears throat> One of these bills has been enacted. The Mississippi legislator established abstinence education as a standard for any sex-related education taught in public schools. The law calls, the law calls for teaching that a mutually faithful monogamous relationship in the context of marriage is the only appropriate setting for sexual intercourse. In Virginia, when mandatory sex education was repealed by the state school board in 1997, the legislator voted to reinstate sex education with the stipulation that the programs present, present sexual abstinence before marriage and fidelity within monogamous marriage as moral obligations and not matters of personal opinion or personal choice. The measure was vetoed by Governor James S. Gilmore on the grounds that the decision of whether to offer sex education should be left to the local school board. According to dozens of sexually, sexuality education proponents interviewed for this report during the later half of 1997 and early 1998, <clears throat> the push for abstinence-only education is only is only the most visible element of a larger conservative strategy to eliminate more comprehensive programs. Other proposals include eliminating co-educational classes and changing the parental consent process in ways that sex education proponents one <clears throat> could make participation in sex education more complicated for students and costly for schools. Groups opposed to sex education have captured the momentum, many of these observers say, because opponents, the opponents' new tactics seem less extreme than past efforts and are therefore more difficult to refute. The proponents say that, excuse me, that they also bear some responsibility for the current turmoil themselves, both because they have allowed opponents of sex education to foster the misperception that comprehensive programs generally do not teach abstinence and because they have failed to effectively articulate the goals of sex education. Excuse me. Although sex education is often discussed and evaluated in terms of its role in reducing adolescent pregnancy and STD rates, supporters say that its primary goal is broader, to give young people the opportunity to receive information, examine their values, and learn relationship skills that will enable them to resist becoming sexually active before they are ready, to prevent unprotected intercourse, and to help young people become responsible, sexually healthy adults. Unfortunately, notes Michael McGee, Vice President of Education at Planned Parenthood Federation of America, programs today are judged almost exclusively according to whether they feature abstinence rather, rather than whether they promote health. <coughs> Sorry. Supporters of abstinence-only education won a major victory in 1996 and Congress committed $250 million in federal funds over the five over five years to promote abstinence until marriage as a part of welfare reform. Nevertheless, in recent years, it has been primarily at state and local levels where opponents of sexuality education have concentrated their efforts and where they have had their greatest impact. According to many sex education supporters, their opponents are putting enormous pressure on school boards to curtail sexuality education programs and are intimidating school administrators and teachers who in turn are becoming increasingly cautious about what they teach, even when they're under no formal constraints. These are dark times for balance 
Responsible Sexuality Education concludes Barbara Huberman, Director of Training at Advocates for Youth. So that was just a little bit of background, uh, historical background as to the different laws regarding sex education and kind of the theme of what issues are are important in, in determining uh, whether or not sex education is important and what kind of sex education to teach. So sexuality education today, efforts to undermine sexuality education are not new, of course. Sexual education has been the target of right-wing groups since 1960s when John Birch Society and other ultra-conservative organizations charged that such programs are smut, immoral, and a filthy communist plot. The goal of these groups was to eliminate all sex education in schools, and they clearly had an impact. By the early 1970s, legislators in 20 states had voted to restrict or abolish sexuality education. By the end of the decade, only three states, Kentucky, Maryland, and New Jersey, and the District of Columbia required schools to provide sex education. But as Deborah Hoffner notes, the landscape changed dramatically with the advent of AIDS. By the mid-1980s, widespread recognition that the deadly disease can be transmitted through sexual increase intercourse made it totally untenable to argue that sexuality education should not be taught in schools, especially after after Surgeon General C. Everett's group called for sex education in schools beginning as early as the third grade. There's no doubt Cooper wrote in his 1986 report that we need sex education in schools and that it should include information on heterosexual and homosexual relationships. The lives of our young people depend on fulfilling our responsibility. This podcast is brought to you by Silicon Valley High School, the world's fastest-growing, video-based, self-paced, teacher-supported, fully-accredited online school that's recommended by more than 96% of students. Take individual courses at just $95 each or earn your high school diploma at any age. Check us out at svhs.co. The states responded quickly. By the late 1980s, many states required schools to provide instruction about AIDS and other STDs. Some of these states also required instruction in sexuality education. In addition, in 1988, Centers for Abuse Control and Prevention have provided financial and technical assistance to state and local education agencies, national organizations, and other institutions to improve HIV education in schools. As of December 1997, 19 states in the District of Columbia had passed laws policies that required schools to provide sexuality education. Some states appeared to encourage only limited instruction, however. School districts appear to be more likely than states to require instruction about contraception and STD prevention. In 1994 survey, for example, the CDC found that more than 80% of school districts required instruction about prevention of HIV and other STDs as part of health education, and that 72% required instruction about pregnancy prevention and other, in other health programs. As a result of these laws and policies, virtually all teenagers now receive some sexuality education while they are in high school. In the 1995 National Survey, more than 9 in 10 women aged 18 to 19 said they received instruction, as did 7 in 10 women aged 18 to 44. Most students, however, did not receive any instruction until 9th or 10th grade, 16 by which the time, uh, 16 by which of these women <clears throat> had already become sexually active. Even then, the information they received were inefficient. It is widely believed by professionals in the field that most programs are short, that are not comprehensive, and fail to cover important topics that are less effective than they could be. A new strategy. 
In the early 1990s, sexual education advocates report opponents, report opponents have brought increasing pressure to bear on school officials and teachers as they have refocused their efforts on local school boards and state legislators. Prior to that time, opponents had concentrated primarily on national policies. The principal's office not principal's office matters more than who is in the Oval Office, and they decided to pay attention to the elections that no one paid attention to, like those for school board and county commissioner. As a result of this shift, this has seen a sharp rise in the number of challenges to individual school district policies. <clears throat> More than 500 local disputes over sexuality education have occurred in all 50 states between 1992 and 1997, and typically these confrontations were initiated by a few parents or members of a local conservative group. Excuse me. Local conservative group or church, often with backing and support from national organizations with similar, similar political or social agendas, such as Focus on the Family, the Eagle Forum, and Concerned Women for America and Citizens for Excellence in Education. Promoting abstinence. Abstinence-only proponents assert that more comprehensive programs focus primarily on teaching students about contraception and safer sex techniques and that the programs provide little or no instruction in abstinence. They also contend that sex education programs condone homosexuality, teach students how to have sex, and undermine parental authority. Continued high rates of adolescent pregnancy, STDs, and out-of-wedlock births, they say, are proof that widespread failure of conventional a proof of the widespread failure of conventional sex education. Research suggests, however, that many of these charges are unfounded. In a 1988 survey, for example, nine in 10 teachers of sexuality education in grades 7 through 12 reported that they taught their students about abstinence. In addition, the CDC's 1994 survey found that 78% of public and private school teachers in health education classes include instruction in the rationale for choosing abstinence compared with 56% who discussed the efficiency of condoms in preventing HIV and 37% who teach the correct use of condoms. Furthermore, several studies showed that, the se that sexual intercourse among students did not increase after the presentation of pregnancy prevention programs that included discussion of abstinence, contraception, and disease prevention, and that taught teenagers decision-making and communication skills to help them resist risky or unwanted sexual activity. In fact, such programs can help teenagers delay the onset of intercourse and can increase the likelihood that they will use condoms and other contraceptives when they do become sexually active. Moreover, research has found that no methodologically sound studies that show abstinence-only programs delay the initiation of sexual intercourse. Besides the evidence, abstinence-only programs continue to proliferate. This may stem in part from the skillful promotion of these programs. The supporters promise school boards and parents that if schools let them come in and teach an abstinence-only curriculum, children will not have sex. It's a very appealing message to adults who are very concerned that adolescents will become sexually involved too early. At the same time, concerns about teenage sexual activity and its consequences may engender greater receptivity to the notion of focusing exclusively on abstinence, at least among <clears throat> younger adolescents. There's growing recognition at some grade level, grades 6, 7, and 8, only about delaying sex. The question then becomes how long the delay is expected. Many abstinence-only curricula teach young people to forego sex until marriage, which is a very ambitious goal in a country where people typically do not marry until their mid-20s, uh, especially nowadays when a lot of people don't even get married until they're 30. 
<clears throat> These curricula either provide no information about contraception or briefly discuss contraception only in terms of failure rates to emphasize that condoms and other methods of contraception do not provide 100% protection against pregnancy and STDs. Furthermore, many of these curricula and other instructional materials appear to have been designed to frighten adolescents into remaining abstinence. For example, the abstinence only curriculum, Me, My World, My Future, likens these of condoms to playing Russian roulette. Condoms do not prevent STD or AIDS curriculum states. They only delay them. The more often that the sex act, sex act is repeated, the more opportunity there is for condom failure, which uh, obviously is a little bit of a manipulation of the actual failure rates of condoms, but uh, that's that's what abstinence only programs seem to be teaching. Choosing the best, another choosing the best, another widely used only curriculum is called best um, curriculum itself. Also uses the Russian roulette scene, contending that there is a greater risk of condom failure than the bullet being in the chamber. This curriculum also includes a, vi- a video entitled "No Second Chance," in which a student asks, "What if I want to have sex before I get married?" And the teacher responds, "Well, I guess you'll just have to be." Pre- Prepared to die. Sorry. Well, I guess the teacher, I apologize. The student asked, What if I want to have sex before I get married in this curriculum video? And the student's teacher then responds, Well, I guess you'll just have to be prepared to die, and you'll probably take with you your spouse and one or more of your children. A second video package with the curriculum, curriculum Sex, Lies, and the Truth, was produced by Focus on the Family. In it, a student declares safe sex isn't working anymore, condoms are breaking, breaking, birth control is failing, and many kids and young people are just dying. <clears throat> Obviously, some very bold claims from abstinence-only curriculum. There are no official statistics on how many schools use abstinence-only materials, but according to some press reports, 4,000 relations, 16,000 school districts use an abstinence-only curriculum. Sex lies and the truth is estimated by some conservative groups to be used in more than 10,000 school systems. <laughs> Excuse me. Other tactics. In addition to pushing for abstinence-only instruction, sex education opponents are pressing for an end to co-educational sex education classes with explicit parental consent for participation in sexuality education and in districts that retain comprehensive programs for the options of taking an abstinence-only course instead. While these may not appear on the surface to be an attack on sexuality education, those who are in favor of comprehensive instruction believe the ultimate goal behind such proposals remains the elimination of sexuality education in public schools. They fear that the adoption of these measures would prevent obstacles that would undermine comprehensive sex education programs. For example, while comprehensive sex education advocates knowledge that it may at times be beneficial to separate the sexes when discussing puberty, for example, in elementary school children, they believe that elimination of co-educational classes would deprive students of the opportunity to learn how to communicate effectively with members of the opposite sex and how to resist pressure to have sex. The paperwork that would be required to administer the proposed changes to existing parental consent policies also concerns these advocates. The so-called opt-out policy currently used in the vast majority of school districts requires that parents take the initiative to inform the school that they do not want their child to participate in sexuality education. And this is that keep records Fewer than 5% of parents exercise their option to remove their children from sex education courses. 
in contrast, the alternative consent policy proposed by some orders of absence only education would create an opt-in policy requiring the school to obtain written permission from each student's parents before that student could take such education. A projection of the impact of such changes in the schools in Fairfax County, Virginia, concluded that Processing the nearly 100,000, 134,000 forms generated by 98% of the parents in the school system who allow their children to receive sexuality education would require two weeks of work by 50 school employees. <clears throat> in addition to the increased burden of school staff and finances posed by the option consent policy, there is an additional risk that some children would be excluded from sexuality education, not because their parents did not want them to participate, but because the necessary consent form either never reached the parent or was never returned to the school. We have about five minutes left, and I think that this topic is going to flow over into the next show, because right now we're just discussing discussing the issues, and as you can see, that there is a, a great amount of issues uh, with sex education. We have a lot of time, and we still have a little bit more to go through. So next week's show is going to be a different topic, but I'm going to say that we're we're going to continue to talk about this in next week's show, um, some of the benefits of sex education in addition to the issues that we're talking about here. So we're just going to continue on with teachers' fears increase. The debates over program content and the proliferation of local controversies have heightened teachers' long-standing concern that parents and school officials do not support their efforts to provide sexuality education. As a result, they fear that discussion of controversial topics, masturbation, sexual orientation, abortion, and increasingly contraception could jeopardize their careers, according to many sex education proponents. Teachers are scared. Even the best are very discouraged, that reports Peggy Brick, the director of education at Planned Parenthood of the Greater Northern New Jersey and a longtime sexuality education educator and trainer. Ultimately, proponents say teachers believe their careers are at stake. There's always a potential for saying something that someone will, some parent will find objectionable. Planned Parents, um, if a parent complains to the principal, the teacher may be called on the carpet, publicly humiliated, or threatened with the loss of his or her job. It's a very risky business. Whether the pressure to avoid controversial subjects is real or imagined is a matter, matter of debate. Nevertheless, perception among teachers is that this pressure not only exists, but that it's also intensified in recent years. Whether the pressure to avoid controversial <clears throat> subjects is, oh, I apologize. Further, for fueling this perception, Caswell and others say, excuse <coughs> me, teachers perceive themselves as more constrained, reports Patty Cadwell, Senior Vice President of Planned Parenthood of Southern Arizona, apologize, which provides sex education in public schools in the Houston area. There's limited evidence that they are constrained as constrained as they think they are, but the perception has significant impact on their confidence. <coughs> I do apologize. Having a little bit of a coughing fit. <coughs> Feeling this perception, Cadwell and others say, <coughs> the teachers sense they do not have support of their principal and superintendent. Administrators' con commitment and comfort with the field is more important than board policy or official doctrine of Scott McCann, Vice President for Education at Planned Parenthood of Santa Barbara, Ventura, and San Luis Obispo, 
counties in California. Fears of controversy deters many school officials from taking a high-profile position on sex education, proponents say. Another reason, according to Brenda Green, manager of the HIV and AIDS Education and School Health Program at the National School Board Association, is that sexuality education is generally not a high priority for school officials. Administrators want to focus on academic standards, student safety, and other issues that communities and the states hold them accountable for. I'm going to go ahead and just stop here because we have about three minutes left. So I'm just going to outline some of the things that we're going to continue to talk about in next week's show. And that's going to be additional issues with sex education, which is a lack of training on the teacher's behalf, classroom consequences, which is the perception among teachers that they lack support for their work, additionally with lack of training, and it affects what happens in the classroom and how the students receive the sex education. Then we're going to go on to how to address these problems, how people are starting to address these problems and try to create more effective sex education. And then we're going to go on into what exactly defines sex, effective sex education and how effective sex education has been proven to prevent early adolescent pregnancies and high STD rates uh, additionally. And then we're going to also talk about Pamela, in my opinion, on this topic. And we're hoping that the audience will have a chance now that they've heard a little bit about the issues of sex education to definitely call in for next week's show. Again, our number is 347-633-9225 because we'd love to have your opinion because this is such a personal and controversial topic. And we definitely very beneficial to the audience, me and Pamela, to have other people voice their opinions about this topic. So that's what we're going to discuss next week, and that'll be up on Blog Talk very shortly. Thank you again for bearing with me through my cold, and we'll see you next week. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Don't forget to rate us and follow us on your podcast player. Check out our show page, radio.newheightseducation.org, for monthly announcements and other happenings.